Hey Rebels, welcome to another edition of Rebel Parenting. Today's broadcast is a thinker and I can't wait for it. We are interviewing journalist and author Rob Mall. Rob is the editor-at-large at Christianity Today. He's also written in the Wall Street Journal. That is a very, very big deal. He serves as the communications officer at World Vision. Also wrote a book, very popular, called The Art of Dying. I was so fascinated with this interview. He is such a smart guy, and we dug really, really deep into this. And I want to tell you one of the illustrations you're going to hear on the program today, but in case you miss it, I want to bring it up right now. We talk about pornography, and we do that a lot here in Rebel Parenting, and Rob talked scientifically about why pornography is bad for your brain and bad for your body, and that's why your body knows so much about God. And one of the reasons is is when you're near somebody you're attracted to, when you're with your wife or your husband or a girlfriend or a boyfriend, someone that you find attractive, the chemicals start getting released in your body. And those chemicals are bonding chemicals. There's oxytocin, there's dopamine, serotonin. All these things are designed to bond you to another person. That's why when the Bible says the two shall leave their father and mother, they become one flesh All of those chemicals bond your bodies together to that other person. Now, when you introduce pornography and you get sexually aroused, all those chemicals are still produced. But instead of bonding you to a person, your spouse, the two shall become one, they start bonding you to an experience. And that is actually isolating. Instead of bonding you to somebody, creating this relationship and this communication, it isolates you away from your spouse, your significant other, from those around you. That's one of the numerous reasons why pornography is bad for you. We jump into so much of that and more all on today's broadcast. So I don't want to waste your time. You know, yes, I'm on Instagram. It's at Rebel Parenting. Yes, I do Rebel Live every Monday and Friday, 8 Pacific, 11 Eastern, facebook.com slash Dobson. You know that. I see you there. But let's jump into Rob Mall and what your body knows about God on today's edition of Rebel Parenting. Rob, thank you for taking time out of your schedule. We were talking to you while you were at NRB but didn't get to record. And so thanks for being on the broadcast today. Happy to be here. Thank you, Ryan. Yeah, we're just really excited about this topic, and we know that it's going to strike a chord with all our listeners. Mm-hmm. And so we just wanted to jump right in and ask you, Rob, why did you write this book? It's, uh, it can seem out of the blue, can't it? Yeah, a little bit. But <laughs> what got me uh, thinking along these lines was, a book I had written on what it means to die well as a Christian. Awesome. Uh, it's something <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's something that uh, a surprising amount of people are dealing with, especially as family members uh, head into old age and mm. have to start uh, dealing with a lot of uh, chronic uh, long-term illnesses. Mm. And it comes with lots of tough decisions and a trying time uh, for families as they spend often uh, years as, as long mm-hmm. as a decade yeah. or more uh, in, in a caregiving role. Right. And, and, you know, those are difficult, difficult times, difficult periods. And one of the things that struck me as I was uh, learning about this, I spent time as a hospice volunteer. Mm-hmm. I spent time with caregivers and I learned that one of the, uh, 
one of the traits uh, that was pretty consistent among those who uh, dealt with these issues well, people who grieved well, yeah. uh, people who did a great job taking care of family members, mm-hmm. was uh, a, a concern for the physical body. So often they would have funerals with a body present. That's not something that people do very often these days, uh, yeah. but among those who, did it, who uh, processed their grief well, whose families mourned well, uh, having a body present at a funeral uh, or even uh, spending time with a body after uh, that loved one had died. Mm-hmm. Things like that were pretty consistent for me in, um, in seeing those people grieve well, mourn well, process that grief. Uh, so I thought, what is it uh, about our bodies that are actually, mm-hmm. there's something spiritual going yeah. on there. About mm. our physical bodies, right? Sure, correct. And I yeah. started looking into it and read up on some neuroscience yeah. that showed that there's a part of our brain that is involved in prayer. So, you know, when you're praying, you're thinking just like you do if you're, if you're memorizing scripture or if you're you know, at, at your job. Your brain is active in all the same ways, right? And yeah. a part of your brain that's active involved that's active when we're praying is also active in social relationships. So you're stimulating a part of your brain. You're stimulating a part of your brain uh, in prayer that's used when you're interacting with other people for community. Huh? What? That's right. And so what struck me about this when I was in college, I, I had, I, I spent several years, almost my whole college experience, uh, questioning God, doubting things, mm-hmm. trying to figure out my, yeah. my spiritual life. I had this experience of God just two weeks before I graduated college. And I felt like I, I met God personally. Mm-hmm. And what struck me when I learned this about neuroscience was that the next day I would meet people and just be thrilled to interact with somebody. And I felt like I just wanted to hug everybody yeah. I met. Yeah, yeah, sure. Right? I've and been so, there. Yes, I've know, had you, that experience. Yeah, yeah. For you sure. come out of this prayer experience or even, you know, worship at church. Yeah. And you're so excited to meet the person next to you. Or uh, I remember uh, paying for a cup of coffee and thinking, you know, money is just too insufficient for this human interaction mm. that I'm having right now. Yeah. yeah. And, and so it struck me, you know, that the two great commandments to love God and to love your neighbors as yourself, uh, this God has designed our biology to be able to live out these two great commandments that when we love God and we interact with him, when we commune with God, God is changing our very bodies to be able to better love our neighbors as ourselves. Yeah, and you, you kind of talk. That discovery. Oh. Yeah, sorry. That oh. discovery just led me down this into uh, all the research uh, involved in the book. Well, just on that same note, you kind of talked about how I know for me sometimes I just throw out that quick prayer, like that. God protect our family. God, that just the the daily conversation with him, but you kind of talked about the more in depth. Could you kind of touch on that since we're on that topic? Yeah, Rob, I want to ask this actually, because in your book, 
Yeah, I started meditating a couple years ago, and in the Christian world, oddly enough, that gets a whole lot of flack. Even though I see in the Bible regularly the word meditation, meditate on the word and, and in prayer, and I started meditating, and it's really helped my life. And I was reading in your book, it said, uh, it may encourage you toward deeper, longer prayer when you learn that 12 minutes of attentive and focused prayer every day for eight weeks changes the brain significantly enough to be measured in a brain scan. Now, you've got to dig, dig deeper into that one for us because I know this is true. I just want Christians to hear it finally. Right. Well, first, uh, let's, let's talk a little about how the brain works. And the brain is just a bunch of neurons that communicate with each other, right? And just as when you uh, lift weights or you start exercising, your muscles have to grow and mm. change, and that those that change is essentially uh, cells getting stronger and doing their job better. Mm. Uh, the same thing happens in your brain with neurons in that they make uh, new connections or they strengthen the connections that they have. And so you can measure that change uh, with, uh, you know, with brain scanning technology. Okay, that's right. So, so when, when you open up new neural pathways, you can actually scan those and see them. So when you're using your brain in a new way or in a different way or a more focused, concentrated way, similarly, when you start building muscles and you can measure either I'm losing weight, gaining weight, getting stronger, I'm lifting more, when you scan the brain, you're seeing changes that are visible based off of this type of focused prayer. That's right. So you, whether you are uh, learning something new, mm. Uh, mm. you are, you know, learning, relearning. I've got uh, homeschool kids and I, I discover that I'm having to relearn my times tables. Uh, but though, when you, whether you're learning your times tables as a kid or doing them again, like mm-hmm. me as an adult, um, or you are spending time in prayer, your brain is engaged. And when that happens, your brain is making new neural connections. Mm. And when, that, when you do that over time, and one of the keys to that is both time and attention. Hmm. So long-term changes in your brain. Uh, if you try to learn your timetable, if you remember your timetables uh, one day, you forget them the next. But if you do that over and over, you can lay down that neural pathway, as you, as you said it, Ryan, and that becomes uh, a stronger and stronger connection between those neurons and becomes something more permanent. And it takes time uh, and attention. And, and the same is true in prayer. I find when I'm in prayer, uh, that connection with God comes more easily the more that I do it. Right. I think this is uh, I think this is all of our experience. Uh, you, if you step away from church for a month or two and you and you step back in, you know, you, you might feel a little rusty. Mm. Uh, if you step away from prayer for a while mm. and then come back yeah. in, you can feel a little rusty. Yeah. And it's, it's important to note that, as you put it, uh, those uh, quick interactions with God, of course, they're important and God is listening at, you know, at those times as well as others, but he's also designed us to change over time to become different kinds of people when that interaction is long-term and in-depth. Hmm. And so it seems like that threshold is eight weeks and 12, 12 minutes a day for eight weeks. Hmm. And where'd you come up with and, that? And your, and your brain changed. Where, where did uh, that come from? So I didn't, I, yeah, or I where'd didn't you find it? <laughs> 
uh, a neuroscientist uh, mm-hmm. in uh, the University of Pennsylvania who looks at uh, people as they pray and discovered that when he would br- bring in novices, people who were just learning mm-hmm. uh, or just deciding to begin praying, uh, that eight weeks and 12 minutes a day, a, a day seemed to be about the threshold at which uh, below that, uh, your brain didn't make long-term changes. Beyond that, your brain did. Mm-hmm. And 12 minutes a day is not, is, not, is not a lot of time. No. Right? And if you think of, if you think of a relationship you know, my relationship with uh, my family, with my wife, requires more than 12 minutes a day. Right. right? Yes. <laughs> and if we can give God that, he changes us, literally, mm-hmm. uh, physically in our bodies. That is such good news. <laughs> and it's through a relationship because, it, it, you know, yes, we pray. It says pray without ceasing. And so we do those throw up, you know, just toss them out prayers throughout the day. But it's that concentrated effort which is just like in the physical world. You talked about with your family. I'll talk about it with my wife. If I'm spending more time face-to-face, communicating, talking. We're going through um, this thing with the Ziegler family, and they talk about how much time are you spending in eye-to-eye communication with your spouse. And most people spend less than five minutes a day looking their spouse in the eye talking. And you can't build a relationship that way. And you're saying the same thing with God that you build the relationship when you start praying longer and deeper in a more concentrated way. Hmm. That's right, right. Sometimes people can get uh, a little bit concerned if you're talking about meditation, as you, as you said, <laughs> or even talking about uh, how you know, God changes us physically, uh, that God's designed us to, to be this way. It can seem like, well, we're just turning spirituality into a material or mm-hmm. something that's just a, about chemicals in your brain. But if you, th- if you think of it, just like you said, as a relationship, mm-hmm. you know, we're built to be people in relationship. You know, our physical bodies, people who, do- who are isolated and lonely are more likely to be depressed and more likely to, ha- to be uh, sick and to, to die earlier deaths, right? Because our bodies need relationship with other people our bodies need relationship with god yeah like we're wired for community so how does that that's right what did you see how do you develop that for the church well it comes through in 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 several aspects first of all you know the worship experience is also one that our bodies interact with uh, when we are worshiping in a room full of other people, one neuro, uh, neuroscience study said that it's like uh, a worship experience is like being on heroin. <laughs> oh, <laughs> because, that's what it does uh, to the brain? Heroin, yeah, heroin mimics one of the, and f- kind of floods the body with a synthetic uh, neurochemical, uh, uh, dopamine, but it is a, you know, your body needs that uh, mm. chemical. This is the, also the chemical related to falling in love, mm. not the chemical related to long-term attachment, but uh, the sort of, I, I need that, I need that hit again. <laughs> yeah. And when, when we have a worship experience, uh, dopamine is one of the chemicals involved in that. And just a crowd of, the crowd of people, the excitement, uh, being around others and in a worshipful experience mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. we're all u- unified 
in our worship with God. You know, that's one of many things going on in the worship experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, another is often we sit down in church as if it's a school environment where we're there to learn. Uh, we sing and then we transition to learning. Okay. We'll, we learn best in a kind of multi-sensory environment. So hmm. when you look at how sort of traditional churches, more liturgical ones, structured their worship with, uh, with scripture, with singing, with maybe standing and kneeling as part of the service, uh, with images around, you think of an, an old cathedral images. So you, you have your brain taking in information in multiple different ways yeah. mm-hmm. through, your, through your senses, then you're able to better process and remember that information. A lot of the old churches so, have, um, uh, in their stained glass, it'll be the salvation story. And it started early on when not everybody could read. And you'd go to church because pastors could read. They'd read the word to you. But sensorily, as you're speaking of, the depictions around the church also lead us in worship and in knowledge and in learning about Christ and it was designed that way. That's so interesting. Yeah. And especially we homeschool too. And we've been talking a lot in our homeschool curriculum about the atmosphere that we create at our home that helps learning and what can hinder learning too. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So we, we just did the same thing. Remodeled our homeschool room over the weekend. Oh, that's what we want to do. <laughs> bought a bunch of bookshelves and... Yeah. We've got maps maps on the wall, right? Of, and good art, uh, yeah. The period, yeah, you know, the places where we're learning about. We're using flashcards. We've got bookshelves full of books, and uh, yes, you're right. That environment is really important. And I think a lot of times we think the information that uh, sort of the preacher or the pastor is delivering is what's important, and we take notes on that, and, and it is important. But we receive information in multiple, multiple ways. And when the church experience cannot simply be, um, you know, singing combined with uh, teaching, but we can mix those up mm-hmm. and, and combine them in a multi-sensory environment, just one more way to make that experience more, more powerful and use the way that God has designed our bodies to be able to worship him and, and for him to, for God to be able to change us into the person he's created us, the people he has created us to be. Oh, I think that's amazing. And it does, it's funny in a way for me because on Sunday, my wife and I were there and uh, our pastor is not just a pastor, he's also a priest. He, in in um, a liturgical church, he was ordained as well. So we do a lot of uh, liturgy and we do standing up and sitting down. And I was, I don't know what I was thinking about. Everybody stood up and I wasn't there and I stood up and I looked at Laura and I'm like, my goodness, we just stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight all church long. But it's interesting (laughs) when you use your body in movement at different times, it helps you remember more. It helps you be in more community. It helps you pay attention in a different way because you don't just get lost in that lull of someone's talking and I'm sitting, you know, you stand up and then you sit down and then we pray and then we recite something and we do different things like that. And it does help the entire experience. So 
I'll have to go apologize right. to my pastor. <laughs> the, now yeah, we're seeing the value created right, by the right. atmosphere. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just to add, C.S. Lewis says something about prayer, something like that it should be like breathing, that it's so normal mm-hmm. uh, that, it, that it feels like mm-hmm. breath. Yeah. And I, I love that image of prayer being something as, as uh, constant and as normal as breathing in and out. Uh, so, and, and I think that church, like, like we've described, can be like that. Uh, you don't have to, you're, you've got those neural pathways laid down for uh, experiencing God, and you just you step into that environment and you activate those. Mm-hmm. And it's much easier, I think, to you don't have to try to create a new experience, but you enter one that you enter on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah. Um, Rob, I want to get back to prayer in a little bit, but throughout, you know, we've aired, I don't know, 30 or 40 broadcasts so far, and we notice that sexual intimacy and sexual health in marriage keeps coming up. Um, pornography keeps coming up and those types of issues. And <clears throat> we talk a lot about healthy sex, sexuality in marriage can you explain a little bit about the wirings of our brain and how they long for intimacy? And then what happens in our brains when a person becomes addicted to pornography? What does that happen to the brain? My, you know, my dad talked about this so much because he was on the attorney general's commission to study pornography in the eighties and he saw what's happening today. So can you tell our listeners from a scientific standpoint, how we're wired for that intimacy and then how pornography ruins it? Yeah. So I mentioned earlier how dopamine is is this chemical related to falling in love. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, uh, heroin is a synthetic version of it and can, mm. can flood your brain. Um, this is what uh, makes uh, pornography addictive. Uh, dopamine or other neuro- neurochemicals that essentially are released and are ought to be released when we're intimate with the, the person that we love and have committed to oh. on a long-term basis. Okay. And what, what that does is it turns us on right to that person. Uh, and when those chemicals are, are released, it change it, it, Some of them are able to make our brains more susceptible to change. And so this is why pornography can be addictive. When, you know, if you're sitting in front of a computer instead of uh, face-to-face with the person that you've lo- you love and have committed to on a long-term basis, you're essentially bonding to those images instead of to that person. So the sexuality or when we are intimate with the person we love, uh, we bond to that person. The chemicals involved in that process change us, literally change our, our brains to desire that person, to fall in love mm-hmm. with that person, and to change over time to be more and more related to that person. There's a reason why when people who have been together for a long time tend to look like each other. Oh, totally. I see we, that all over the place. Right? Yeah. 
That's right. And we mimic each other. We are, we respond to somebody else's smile. We see that person and respond uh, and tend to respond in the way that they look at us, right? Mm-hmm. So our smile begins to match theirs. Their smile. The okay. way our eyes shape when we, we have a conversation begins to match theirs. Sexuality is a big part of that. Mm-hmm. We're, we are chemically designed to bond to some, the person that we love uh, when we're having sex, when we're being intimate with them, and then over a lifetime together. Yeah. When you interrupt that or short-circuit that process with pornography, it, it can be devastating because mm. you're essentially bonding to that experience. Yeah. Uh, and when you need that rush uh, from, yeah. you know, like, like any drug, um, the, the experience is never, is never enough <laughs> right. to, yep. to fulfill the desire. And it lessens and over so time you, and you have to have more. And, it's just yeah. like any that's other drug. Right. Yeah. What gets you high that's today right. doesn't get you high tomorrow. And hmm. Rob, I don't know if you could answer this, but you know, that uh, when my dad was studying pornography, they found out that the brain imprints and if you talk to adult men and you say, can you remember the very first time you saw pornography? They virtually all can and they can describe it in detail. And it's because of that, because the chemical, instead of bonding to a person, is bonding to an image or an experience. If you continue that over time, does the brain get confused in a way? Does it make it harder to connect with actual human beings because instead of connecting with people you're you're connecting to an experience does it mm. does it continue to make you more isolated as a person absolutely uh it makes you more isolated it 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 short circuits what should be a bonding pro, a bonding experience with another person and and connects you to those images so uh you're you have uh, less desire for the person that you've oh. committed to. Yep. You have, when, if you have intimacy, you, you're, what you're thinking about is not, what comes to mind is not the person in front of you, it's those images, but all of huh? the previous experiences, oh. right, with those images. And, you know, that can be devastating to a, a relationship. Oh, for sure. Uh, and, and over time, it only you know it only gets worse. It gets people get increased, increasingly isolated, uh, and eventually, long term, uh, yeah, definitely lose um, the ability to relate to uh, another person sexually. Mm. They need the images rather than the real thing. Person, and that's why it's so devastating. devastating. Yeah. You know, we don't want to talk about it. It's so embarrassing. And then when you don't talk about it, it keeps it further in the dark and further secret and further isolation, which is exactly what it was designed to do. Pull you out of community, keep you isolated from the people that can get you help. That's why it's so scary. Right. Right. Uh, and the way you break that is you, <laughs> confession, right? And, yeah. uh, and accountability with other people. And... Your brain, you know, thankfully is plastic, as they say. Your brain does change. <laughs> yeah. And you can, it, it can be, uh, 
it can be reversed. Yeah, so, there's hope. Uh, and, and this there's is, always hope, right. people, if you're listening, there's, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm. Uh, and, um, and we also need to uh, change the, the shame narrative because yeah. shame does, is what keeps it in the dark. Yeah. So it's important to, um, to bring that up with people you trust uh, and, and to, you know, to end that process. Yeah. Lastly, this is not a, this is not a Christian concern. Um, this is, these are the way that pornography is destroying relationships is becoming something that um, broadly people are concerned about. Yes. Uh, so this is not, this is not just a uh, Dobson family uh, huh. concern, right? No, this no, I heard something that I just heard that Pamela Anderson just jumped on the bandwagon oh, yeah, and was like touring telling, touring, touring everywhere, saying how destructive this is yeah. for society. Yeah, sadly, Rob. That's right. The majority, it's not a Dobson thing. Uh, we are in the Christian world the exception to the rule of the people that actually talk about it and bring it up into the light. Most churches don't. Hear, where I'm hearing it most is in the secular community. I heard uh, Dr. Drew Pinsky. He's on, the, he's on TV with uh, Celebrity Rehab and uh, Intervention and some of those types of shows. He's a board-certified specialist on addiction. He was talking about it with a comedian, Mark Marin, saying they're so worried about the next generation of boys growing up because this is so weird and convoluted. We have made relationships so confusing in our culture with feminism and masculinity, and we have no idea what to do. And so you confuse these boys. You tell them you shouldn't be masculine, you shouldn't fight, you shouldn't wrestle, you shouldn't be, you know, do all the guy things. And they get so confused and so frustrated, they've stopped looking for relationships and it's all pornography and video games because it's just too complicated. And the only place I'm hearing that spoken of regularly up until now yeah. is in the secular world, which is why we are so thrilled to have you on because from a scientific standpoint, we can talk to the church and say, "Listen, Biblically, it's wrong. Scientifically, it's terrible. We've got to talk about this. Yeah, there's the what you discover when you when you look at this is uh, it's something that that absolutely has to be addressed. There are countries. Uh, when I was do, re- researching the book, I I don't know where it's gone, but uh, at the time, Iceland was considering uh, banning pornography at least for minors. Uh, on its, you know, within within its borders. Yeah. Uh, this is something that in Europe, because of the extreme harmful yeah. effects, especially on very young children, uh, they're debating how to uh, how to uh, keep keep prevent children from accessing pornography. These are all important uh, important conversations to have and conversations to, to move forward. And certainly I think in the church, uh, we, we definitely need to uh, sort of overcome the shame mm-hmm. and, and be public and, and address these issues. Yeah. Uh, and it, for the li- people easy. listening right now, just so you know, your public library doesn't block pornography from your children. Yes. Your public library that is paid for with your tax dollars 
does not filter or protect children from pornography inside its doors. This is nationwide. There have been lawsuits over it. And for some idiotic, dumb reason, we don't protect our kids. And you're talking about Europe, liberal Europe, all-encompassing, all-accepting Europe is saying, hey, you know what? We found out that pornography is bad for kids. Everybody's like, duh. But, I mean, we've got to follow suit. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be. uh, This is something that is simply concern for children and concern for uh, how people relate to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, should, can can drive this conversation, yeah. and certainly we need to we need to be careful about what we uh, allow our children to have access to, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, as well as the expectations we hold for the communities we're a part of. Well, thanks for talking about that, Rob. Mm-hmm. I kind of wanted to switch gears a little bit. You you got really vulnerable in your book, and. You, your strengths and weaknesses chapter. And I just wanted to dive into that, like switch gears of how did you stand with your wife after she had her children and what she was going through with anxiety and depression and what you were noticing and studying at the time. So how did you support her in her process? Well, I was really glad, first of all, to be in the middle of this book project, put it all on hold for about six months after my wife had our fourth child, mm. uh, we just moved to Washington State, so there was a lot of stress going on anyway. Yeah. Uh, gave, she gave birth, and uh, you know, a, a postpartum, you know, you're, mm. <laughs> yeah. the horm- you know, hormones in a woman's body uh, throughout pregnancy and, and after um, just create a situation where postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, uh, can be very common. Yeah. Uh, I remember I'm standing in the room now where she first had a panic attack Mm. and I knew, I, I knew something, I knew enough, thankfully to, just encourage her to to take deep breaths, Mm -hmm. uh, to breathe in and out slowly. uh, And, and then subsequently learned, you know, what anxiety is, uh, that's different than uh, depression. Yeah. uh, What a what a panic attack is. uh, And we went through beginning with with that first panic attack. We went through uh, what was a kind of a three-month descent followed by um, some recovery. And then since then, years long dealing with uh, anxiety. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is a, your body has kind of two sides of its nervous system, you know, your fight or flight system, Mm -hmm. and then your quiescence or calming system. So your fight or flight system is what you need if you're uh, if you're in a car accident, your body goes into panic mode, mm-hmm. shuts down certain systems, gets other systems going because you need to survive that. Right. Uh, if if you're um, you know burn if you burn your hand on the on the stove, you know our we go through situations where. Our bodies need that surge of adrenaline, need that system to be in place. Uh, this is also why sort of chronic stress is a problem. If you're constantly 
worried or stressed mm. at work or for whatever other reason, yeah. you're engaging your fight or flight system. Mm. That system's designed to turn on in, a, in an emergency and then shut down afterwards. Keyword Someone being with, shut down. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's right. And so those of us who, uh, you know, carry too much stress from work or things like that, we, uh, we overactivate that system and it can destroy our health in all kinds of ways. Mm. Uh, and then some people, uh, you know, God has designed our world with incredible variation mm -hmm. and some people are, have a, an extremely sensitive fight or flight system and it can turn on when it doesn't make any sense to turn on. And mm. essentially that's what a panic attack is. Your body feels like, you know, <laughs> you're, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're being uh, attacked. You're, yeah, you're in danger. So it feels mm -hmm. like you're being uh, robbed in an alley, mm -hmm. uh, but you're home in your bed and there's <laughs> nothing wrong. Yeah. And, and so your mind attaches, oh, there must be something wrong because I feel like it. Yes. And then it starts searching uh, for the answer. <laughs> you know? That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. We've talked I've, about I've a little bit on the program. Time. I get panic attacks. And, um, I'm doing better with it, but I do, I get, I get panic attacks and it's crazy. I will wake up from a dead sleep and be in a panic attack. And I think well, there's nothing going on right now. My brain will look for something that could be wrong, you know, and it's just the, yeah. it's the weirdest thing. So, yeah. And it's something that, uh, it's another, especially for men, it's another area where there's often way too much shame. Uh, so, uh, I've talked with, with other guys who have, who have dealt with this and it's, it, it's only because they've read my story where they feel like, okay, they can, sure. I, I'm someone right. yep. who they can, they can talk to. Mm. Uh, but this is, you know, our, our bodies are designed to, to need to respond with a, with that reflex. Uh, but for, for many people, it's something that, that happens out of order, right? Yes. At the wrong times yeah. or in the middle of the night. I mean, I've seen that, you know, you sit, bolt right, bolt, sit up and something is wrong. You know, mm. did you hear something? What, what happened? What, and, um, and it, that's a, it's a really tough, a, a really tough thing, uh, to, to deal with or to manage, uh, to live with, um, and then I think that we, we need to respect, first of all, that, that that's the case for many people yes. and to provide room. You know, it's not mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. one of the hardest things for my wife is that it's not like uh, you're in a wheelchair, right? Correct. People assume that, uh, uh, people assume that you're just like, you're just like them uh, when, because it's a, it's, I don't know that I want to call it an illness, but it's, uh, it's a, situation that you can't see from the outside yeah totally and uh and so we, we have to manage our lives yeah as a family differently uh right because uh because too much going on uh so for a perfect example i said we had we had redone our our homeschool room well the homeschool room looked looked great but we 
in the in the process, we had littered the hallway. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> boxes and you know uh, all the all the IKEA boxes and, and things like that. Uh, and my wife said, we need to clean this up before we go to bed because it's going to give me anxiety to have a messy hallway. Totally. Why, you know, wh- why, or whatever the reason we, we do have to manage our lives and live our lives differently, uh, as a result of that. And it teaches us a lot about weakness. Yeah. As you said, uh, we can learn to be you know, empathetic and compassionate toward others when we understand our own suffering when we go through suffering on our own. And I think that's a, it's important to remember that, uh, when, uh, we, when we suffer, whether it's panic attacks or, uh, depression or anything else, uh, it allow it gives us a unique insight into other people's suffering mm-hmm. and builds our own ability to be compassionate. For sure. Definitely. Yeah, I I know for me, when I had my first panic attack, it was in between. We had just lost two babies, I think, previous um, at this point. And I thought, oh, miscarriages. I thought I was having a heart attack. I really did. I'm like, oh, my God. You know, and I did. I panicked and full. And I ended up in the ER. And and I remember not really knowing what was happening at the time. Ryan was gone. I had a two-year-old, you know, just had a toddler. Um, But then as years went by and I've talked to more people and it's becoming something that's more regular in the lives of people we're surrounded by. And it it made it more... um, not acceptable, but more normal. Like I wasn't alone in this journey. And, um, yeah. And you know, I've had tons of other women say, Oh yeah, on my first one, I ended up at the ER too. And so it's like, Oh, okay. (laughs) Like, it's just making it like we can band together in our struggles and in our weaknesses. Hey, we would have ended up at the ER, uh, that first night for us. Uh, my wife insisted that I call an ambulance Yeah, and if, if if I hadn't been already learning all this stuff about the brain, uh, I I would have followed orders. Yes, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Because it it does, it it feels a hundred percent real and it is, it's a, there's a physical manifestation. It does seem like a heart attack. And I like that you're being vulnerable about that. Thank you. Sharing it. Because it normalizes it, it allows people to talk about it and communicate, and that does help. Rob, b- before we go, you've got a Sunday tradition. You invite people to your home, and you pray. I-, I love this. It's such a great community builder. Will you just, before we go, talk a little bit about that and kind of the, maybe it's just some of the stories or things that have come from this? Yeah, so we moved to Seattle, and it just hadn't quite uh, found that church community that that we were looking for. We still kind of visited churches, but we had a, we had met a few friends who were also looking for something uh, to to dive deeper in their faith. And so what we would do is invite uh, just a handful of people, a couple of families with kids, uh, some single folks, and some. Uh, some older folks, and I love that mm. intergenerational aspect to so it. So do we. And we would we would go through uh, the Book of Common Prayer uh, Compline service. Really simple. Uh, you know, it took no preparation, and we would just <laughs> we'd sit down and say, "Okay, who's gonna who's gonna lead the service uh, tonight?" and uh, one person would lead. We, there were some responsive prayers. We would uh, read a few scripture verses, 
take some time and share, you know, whatever we had uh, specifically to pray about, uh, go through that service. It would take about an hour and we'd mm. follow it up with soup in the winter and hot dogs yeah. in the summer. Nice. And we have yet to outdo that as a, as a church. We didn't really call it church, but uh, as a community spiritual experience, uh, it has been the most profound uh, experience in our lives. Uh, that, that group of people, we knitted together just incredibly well. And uh, it, was, it was just the, the easiest thing that we could have done to get people together and to, and to say some prayers. And, oh, my goodness, uh, the time spent together in community – with other people sharing your lives together and connecting with God together. Uh, it, it, it takes us back to where we began the conversation that our brains are designed to love God and mm. serve others. And that was this, that those intimate times together, uh, connecting with God and connecting with each other, uh, have just been the most uh, powerful community experiences, um, uh, and community spiritual experiences of our lives. Mm. Rob, we just thank you so much for your stand and your commitment to community and to God. I just, I'm just, I got chills on my skin just talking to you. I'm excited. It just, I love how simple God can be and how transformation can occur in our lives and we can have that community we desire. And so just thanks for being that example to us. Thank you. The, the big takeaway for me in this book is that God has designed us to love Him and to serve others. And mm. when we follow His design, we can, we can grow in Him and connect with those around us. And that's exactly what He's designed us to do. Mm. Absolutely. Rob, thanks for being on the broadcast. We would love to have you back on to talk about your other book, The Art of Dying Someday. So thank you. We appreciate it. Well, thank you, guys. It's been great to talk. Rebels, we are out of time for today, but man, I hope you enjoyed that broadcast. I think Rob Mall is so smart. I love talking to him. I'd love to sit down just for an hour or two and have one of those open forum conversations with him and then play it for all of you. That's one of my favorite types of communication. I wish we could do that here. Someday we will. But in the meantime, you can get Rob's book, The Art of Dying, or the one we talked about today, What Your Body Knows About God. You can find that on Amazon, wherever books are sold. Uh, he is such a great guy. You can find him at Christianity Today all over the place. And catch me every Monday and Friday, 8 Pacific, 11 Eastern, Facebook.com slash J. Ryan Dobson for Rebel Live. And on Instagram, we've switched. It's now at Rebel Parenting. Thanks for listening. God bless. We love you. See you next week. <laughs>